Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. I also wanted to talk a little bit on this podcast just about uh, some more uh, business, uh, you know, problems of running a business because I did get some feedback when I um, spoke on the podcast about the uh, you know discrimination type lawsuits and the risks inherent in hiring members of minorities, uh, including women who are obviously not minorities, they're a slight majority of the population. Although I think you know when a lot of the civil rights legislation was being written or expanded to include women, of course, not as many women were in the workforce as there are today because they didn't have to work because their husbands could afford to support them. But now that we're so much of a poorer country uh, with a lot higher taxes and lower living standards, uh, you know, women are probably as likely to work nowadays as men. And so they're not really minorities in that sense, but they do have all this protection uh, when it comes to the ability to sue. Because when employers empower certain groups with these special privileges that they call rights, right, they really uh, give them a club with which they can beat up their employers. And so some employers are reluctant to hire people who have that club because they don't want to get bashed with it. And now there were people that were saying, oh, you know, Peter, you're racist, uh, just assuming that, you know, a minority is more likely to sue. That's a racist comment. It's not racist. They're, they're not suing because they're minorities. It's because they've been empowered with this club. You know, if you don't have the minority, if you're not a minority, you you don't carry that club around. So how are you going to swing it if you don't have it? You know, if they didn't have all these laws and special treatments, then no, you know, blacks or Latinos or gays or people in uh, with handicaps or women would be no more likely to sue than anybody else. 
but they are more likely to sue now because of what the government has done. But yes, I mean, people will remind out remind me that, well, you know, men can sue for sexual discrimination. Somebody who's a man can sue and say, hey, you fired me because I'm a man or you didn't promote me because I'm a man. But, you know, it rarely happens, even though there is that type of discrimination. It's very difficult to file that kind of a lawsuit. Juries are not going to be that sympathetic. It's, you know, again, it's like a guy claiming uh, he was raped. I mean, I guess it's possible for a woman to rape a man, but not that many jurors are going to buy it. You know, uh, it's going to be hard to convince somebody that that happened. Just like, you know, is it possible that somebody discriminated against somebody because they're male or because they're white? Yeah. But try selling that one to a jury. You know, try getting a lawyer that wants to take that case. You know, people are much more likely to believe that the discrimination went the other way around. That's that's where all the, the evidence is or that's the, the the prejudice or the precedent. And so that that's that's the road. So, yes, it's much easier if you're black to say I didn't get the job because I was black. Right. Uh, than to say, well, you know, I, I didn't get it because because I was white. You know, I was talking to a guy who was, you know, trying to get hired at my company. I was talking to him about where he worked in the past and, you know, where he was working now. And he told me that, you know, he had this particular job uh, as a broker, but he initially wanted to be a branch manager. And it's a big bank. It's a, you know, national bank. He wanted to be a branch manager. And a friend of him had gotten him the interview. And he interviewed and he was qualified. But then he found out from his friend that they couldn't hire him because they needed a woman to fill that slot. And, um, And so he took a different job, not the one he really wanted, and it was a high-paying job. It was a you know two hundred thousand plus salary job. But uh, they they it took them another six years, and they eventually hired a woman. And it took them a long time to find the woman uh, that they wanted. But they had decided that they needed a woman. I guess because you know that's what they needed. They had too many men. They needed a, you know diversity, and so they were looking for a woman. But you know, try this guy tried to file a lawsuit. Hey, you know, I was denied the job because I'm a man. Good luck, right? But I mean, and this is what happens with bigger companies. See, bigger companies, if you're a big company, you got to hire a lot of minorities. Otherwise, you look like you're discriminating because part of the the way they try to prove you're discriminating is they base it on the numbers. So if you you know hardly have any of a particular ethnic group, well, then that's proof that you're discriminating against that ethnic group. So large companies will actually go out of their way to try to find women or minorities to fill key positions so they don't look like they're discriminating. But of course, to do that, they have to discriminate. Now, again, I think that's their right. I think if a company wants to hire a woman for a particular job, that should be their right. But of course, the reason they're doing it is wrong is because they don't want to get sued for not hiring women. So they're going out of their way to try to find them. Even if they have a qualified man, they'll spend six months looking uh, for a woman. But for a small company, right, if you're a small employer and you're only going to hire you know, a few people, two, three, four people, then it doesn't matter. I mean, if they're all white or all men, no one can say that you're discriminating because your only three employees are white. It's not a big enough sample. It's not a big enough pool. Uh, So I think smaller employers try to avoid hiring anybody who is likely to sue them. Uh, And the larger employers, you know, they have a different uh, uh, deal that they're that they're that they're working with. But again, people said, oh, be your racist. Because, you know, it's not just minorities that will sue. And again, that's true. It's not about racism. It's about probabilities. But yes, you can be sued by white men. I know that because I'm being sued by one now. In fact, today, several of my key people, uh, 
some management people and some people who work for me are in New York because I have been sued by an ex-employee. And this employee happens to be a white man, and he's suing me for wrongful termination. So it's not just minorities or women that can sue you, which is why hiring anybody is risky in America. It's just riskier to hire certain people because they're more probable or there's a higher probability that they're going to sue you. But whenever you hire anybody, you make yourself a target, which is why, you know, you should try not to hire anybody if you can get away with it. If you can start a small business and just outsource or automate, so much the better because the government really makes it hard. Now, you know, bef- I might as well say a little bit about this case. I mean, oh, Peter, this guy is suing you for wrongful termination. What did you do wrong? Nothing. I didn't do anything wrong. It's a frivolous suit. That's the point. You know, I hired this guy to do a particular job. And he wasn't very good at the job that we hired him to perform. In fact, you know, I think he embellished, and that's, uh, you know, putting it nicely, his resume somewhat as to what he was proficient at, what his skills were. So he wasn't particularly good at what we hired him to do. But rather than firing him, we thought he might work better uh, in a different position. So we kind of changed his his, his job nature and, and had, to get, had him do something else. And not necessarily at a lower rate of pay. We just had him do another function that we needed. Rather than firing him and hiring somebody else, we moved him to a, a different position. But the guy, you know, just had a hard time getting along with other people. We had many, many complaints about this individual uh, from other people in the firm, numerous complaints. And he just it was he was making the work environment different, difficult for other people, which, of course, holds me open to lawsuits from other employees. I mean, if you got one employee who's creating a lot of problems and making your other employees feel uncomfortable, you know, if, if you don't remove that employee you theoretically leave yourself open to a lawsuit from the other employees saying, hey, you know, I'm subjected to harassment from this guy or, you know, he's making the work environment intolerant. So you always have to be very cognizant of an employee that you have that is, you know, you're constantly getting complaints from other employees who are also in a position to sue you if you don't do something about the person that they're complaining about. And it wasn't just one person. It was numerous people throughout the firm that had complained about this guy. And, you know, we had taught, we had warned him several times and talked to him. But again, and you're talking about an at-will employee. I mean, we hire the guy. You know, we should be able to fire him for whatever reason we want. Just like he can quit for whatever reason he wants. But this is America where you no longer have any rights uh, if you open up a business and hire somebody. And so we ended up terminating him. Which, you know, and of course, having to terminate somebody is never an easy thing for a company. I mean, sometimes we terminate people because we need to cut costs because business is down. But when we terminated this individual, we needed somebody to replace them. I mean, so, you know, you got to find a new guy. uh, You need training. I mean, when you have an employee and you have some time invested in that employee, you know, you don't want to have to replace them. I mean, when they as they learn their job, they become more valuable. But in this case, this guy was a liability. He was like a loose cannon uh, and, you know, making it harder for other people to work and maybe subjecting me to lawsuits from other employees if I didn't, you know, cut him out. Right. He was like a cancer in the in the body of the company. But, you know, and then, of course, what does he just do? Well, he just files a suit and says, I want a bunch of money because you shouldn't have fired me. 
as if it isn't our decision in the first place who to hire and who to fire. He doesn't have an employment contract, right? He's working there at the pleasure of the company. And if the company decides that his services are no longer required, if there's no longer any value that he has to offer, the my company is not required to continue to employ him. Now, of course, he has to fabricate all kinds of nonsense about why he thinks, you know, the the his termination was unjust. But, you know, what makes it easy for him to do that? He gets a contingency lawyer, so it costs him nothing to sue me. The law firm takes the case, and they hope they can shake me down. Now, in this case, it didn't work. I have a in-house attorney, so I didn't have to go out of my way and hire an attorney. But if I was a smaller business and I didn't have a attorney on salary, then I probably would have had to settle. But it's still going to cost me if you add up all the costs of the time and I got employees. I mean, it's probably five to $10,000 worth of company resources that end up getting used up um, defending myself against a frivolous lawsuit for wrongful termination. But this is part of the problem that American business owners face. And this is why American businesses are so uncompetitive, why there's so many people that can't get jobs, is because the government has made it so hard and so expensive and so risky to hire Americans all in the names of buying votes. And the reason is because when you're trying to get votes, there is a much larger percentage of people that want jobs than create jobs. And so you get votes by appealing to the job seekers, not the job creators. But when you punish the job creators in order to get the votes of the job seekers, then there's not as many jobs for the job seekers to get. Right. And so the job seekers, it backfires. Right. They 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 want something from government because the government promises to make their lives better. Yet the result is the government makes their life worse because they want jobs. The more jobs, the better. But now the government creates an environment that minimizes the number of employers because people want to hire fewer people or they don't want to hire people at all because of all these laws that politicians pass in an attempt to get the votes right of uh, the people who wanted those jobs. And now the opportunities don't exist anymore. Again, you have to be careful of the government and government making promises. You know, hi, I'm from the government. And I'm here to help you. Right. Those are the most dangerous words in the English language. Now, I want to point out to another example of regulation. I mentioned some time ago the reason that I opened up my offshore bank, Euro-Pacific Bank, which is also a, a brokerage firm and investment advisory company. The impetus for my establishing that company was the regulators were just making it harder for me to work with foreigners who had accounts with my U.S. brokerage firm. It was just a higher level of scrutiny that was running up my compliance costs and really creating problems for my international clients who really resented the extra hoops that they were being required to jump through. So as a result, I, I, you know, I set up this foreign bank to service my international clientele. And I thought, yeah, you know, this is unfortunate because this is business that could have been done in the United States. Uh, it would have been more income for me in America, uh, maybe would have resulted in my employing more Americans. Instead, I now have upwards of 30 people working for my offshore bank, maybe closer to 40 now. A lot of these jobs would be in America, except now they're outside of America because regulation forced me to do something outside the country 
that I was already doing inside the country, and I could have expanded, but the regulations made it more difficult. Well, now it's not just that the U.S. government has made it more difficult for me to work with foreign clients. They've made it impossible. Based on the evolution, and maybe that's not the best word, but the expansion of regulations from the securities industry, we can no longer accept uh, foreign accounts. I mean, accounts from people who are domiciled outside the United States. And we're actually having to tell our clients who have foreign addresses that they need to close their accounts, that we can't accept uh, any trades on their accounts anymore. And this includes American citizens. So if I have a customer who is an American and maybe he lives in Texas and he moves to Germany, he's got to take his account with him. I can't keep him as a client anymore because now he lives in Germany, which is ridiculous. But unfortunately, this is what it's come to based on the new regulatory environment we live in. So in order to work for my U.S. bro, in order to be a client, a customer of my U.S. brokerage firm, you must live in the United States. Now, you don't have to be an American citizen. You could be a German living in Texas, but you have to live in the United States. If you live outside the United States, even if you are an American, you can't work with my U.S. brokerage firm. Now, you know, the rules of my offshore bank, we will not accept accounts from anybody that lives in the United States. You have to live outside the United States in order to work for in order to work in order to be a customer uh, at my offshore bank. But you also have to not be an American citizen. So what that means is that American citizens who are living abroad can't do business with me anywhere. I mean, they can still buy precious metals from my gold company. That's not illegal yet. So Schiff Gold can sell gold uh, to Americans who live in foreign countries. In fact, Schiff Gold can can still sell gold to anybody, any place in the world. But... If you're an American citizen living abroad, you can't be a client of my U.S. brokerage firm. That's against the law now. And you can't be a client of my foreign bank. And that's not because it's against the law. It's because my bank doesn't want to be compliant with all the U.S. rules and regulations that it would be forced to comply with if I did accept American citizens. But this is just going to make it that much more difficult for Americans to live abroad, because if you move abroad... And now your old brokerage firm says, you know, you moved out of the country. I can't work with you anymore. Good luck finding a foreign brokerage firm that's going to take your account when you have a U.S. passport. So it's almost going to be impossible for Americans to live abroad and function in society. Having bank accounts, having brokerage accounts is going to be almost impossible uh, unless you renounce your U.S. citizenship. Because once you do that, well, then, you know, the albatross is off your neck. I mean, if you are an American and you do move to a foreign country, if you renounce your U.S. citizenship, you can't work with your Pacific capital because of your foreign address. But once you get rid of that U.S. citizenship, uh, we can welcome you with open arms at your Pacific bank. But again, all these rules, regulations that make it so much harder to operate a business, you know, whether it's whether the U.S. government makes it difficult for people to do business with you. In which case, foreigners, so the government is limiting my customers, limiting my ability to generate revenue. And then the government makes it easy for employees or former employees to sue me frivolously, uh, running up my cost of doing business and making me reluctant to hire people. And of course, it's not just me. I'm just, you know, using my 
personal examples here, just some things that are happening recently. But every businessman in the country is having to put up with uh, various degrees of government interference, government regulation, all of which undermines his ability to run a business in the first place, start a business, grow a business, and most particularly, hire people. Hello, this is Peter Schiff. I bet you didn't know that without silver, you wouldn't be hearing this podcast right now or be able to use a computer at all. From laptops to smartphones to TVs to speakers, virtually all modern electronics use silver to conduct electricity. Did you know that the average solar panel uses two-thirds of an ounce of silver to function? And the solar industry is expanding dramatically, not just in America, but in booming developing nations like China and India. Silver is naturally antibacterial and is used extensively in modern medicine. Silver coatings are being added to breathing tubes, bandages, catheters, and other medical instruments to reduce the spread of infections. When antibiotics fail, silver still works. I believe the 21st century will be the century of silver. As fiat currencies continue to collapse and new uses are found for silver every day, the white metal strong industrial demand and low per ounce price will make it increasingly attractive to savers around the world. At today's prices, people of any age and background can afford to buy some silver. Learn why silver is a smart and reliable investment in my free special report, The Powerful Case for Silver. Visit shiftsilver.com and download it now. The Powerful Case for Silver includes information about silver's amazing chemical properties. It also explains why I believe silver may outperform gold in the coming years. Download The Powerful Case for Silver and educate yourself, your friends, and your family about the white metal. Just visit shiftsilver.com to download my free report. That's shiftsilver.com.